Hey there, chatters. I'm Nat. And I'm Pat. And welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale. Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown as we obsessively binge watch all this shit on Netflix. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Here's your disclaimer, Chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of potentially, yes, violent scenarios today. It's Uh going to be a doozy. Doozy. Your listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And before we get into today's crime chat, Kat, what have you done? Well, speaking of Netflix, mm. have you seen the teaser for the hatchet-wielding hitchhiker? I have. Did you watch it? Yes. And? It was really good. Was it? Okay, okay, okay. So, <laughs> so the guy that he was convicted of killing, mm-hmm. it, it, I remember that story because I was living in New Jersey when it happened. And I remember hearing on the news that a judge was murdered in his home. Like, I remember that. It was probably an hour and a half away from my house in New Jersey. It wasn't very far at all. So I still am in disbelief like, you, you lived in Jersey. <laughs> I am not a Jersey girl. I know. I know. <laughs> so, okay. So really quick caveat. I went to firearms instructor training to be a firearms instructor and, you know, teach on the line and, and everything like that. And we were talking about hand grips on the pistols, like on the guns and stuff and, and how different hand sizes and have different effects on the trigger pull and that kind of thing well my nickname because i was living in jersey at the time when i went to this class was snooki mcmahon hands (laughs) not because you had an orange tan right please tell me it's not because you have orange no okay thank you no just just because i lived in jersey they were calling me snooki mcmahon hands because you know joking around saying it's not like like cat's man hands right you know so, Snooky McMahon hands. That was my nickname in fire instructor training. The more you know, chatters. And <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so yeah, so I remember that story in Jersey, and I did not put two and two together because I don't remember the video. I don't remember him going viral, going you know, smash, yeah. smash, smash. Like I don't, I don't know where I was. Like I don't remember that at all. Yeah. But I do remember when the judge was murdered in his home. And, of course, putting the two and two together. It was actually really super interesting. He still thinks that it was in self-defense because he says he was raped. Mm. Did you watch it? I did not, but I know the story. Oh, okay. So I have not watched it yet. That is on my to-do list, but, like, I know the story. And sometimes Netflix is not the most reliable because I feel like sometimes they kind of, like, drive it in a certain way okay. to make certain, some people look guilty. I know yeah. they did that with the Tiger King. Yeah. So a little spin, a little spin. They spin it in a yeah. way, and then yeah. you watch a documentary, and then you're like, "What? No, Netflix said this," and you're like, "But did it?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but and, and it's all entertainment, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I watched the beginning of two series, mm-hmm. and you know me, chatters, Nat. I'm a binger, mm-hmm. so when they come out an episode at a time, not good enough. Not good enough. No. <laughs> I will mm-hmm. say, so the first one I was I watched was, it came out in HBO, The Last of Us, mm-hmm. and it's about kind of, 
kind of a well apocalyptic. Okay. It's a fungus that spreads throughout the world. If you met, can you remember like on the Planet of the Apes when that was a virus that's the newer, not the old Planet of the Apes, where the virus just kind of spread, or even COVID, shit. It spread around the world and it just was like killing people. Yeah. Well, that's what happened with this fungus. But what it does is it turns the people into like zo- zombies in a way, where they get infected with this fungus and they eat other people. Like The Walking Dead. Kinda. <laughs> Kind of, <laughs> but it, it, I only saw the first episode. It was good to, for me to watch another sh- another like follow on, but I'm like, there's got to be more because mm-hmm. and you know a lot of times it, the first few episodes it kind of set the whole thing up. So yeah, it was advertised a lot. I saw it everywhere, and I was like, well, I will give it a shot, but I may not watch it until I can watch a few of them. Right. And then the other one that has me hooked is Mayfair Witches on AMC. Uh- I've never heard of that. Is that good? Yeah. Is it a limited series or is it something that's going to stick? I don't know. I think I told you I I was watching an interview with the vampire, right? So when that Mm -hmm. season ended, they started teasing this one a couple months ago, the Mayfair Witches. And I was like, ooh, you know, it looks like really good. The main actress, I can't think of her name. She looks very familiar. Does does a really good job in it and everything. And it's just about, she was adopted and this coven in New Orleans, of course, Uh you know, tried to keep her away from family and she kind of finds out where her bloodline came from she ends up going back into new orleans and all this other spooky stuff starts happening so okay because i can't it's actually it was really good i I think three episodes are out three or four okay i get nervous with these series because i have been i am like twice bitten was it once bitten twice shy yeah i got into the east end which is Mm-hmm. A while a while ago, and I mm-hmm. really really liked the episode. The episodes, and they only went to like season three, and then they just canceled it. And I'm like, just stopped. Yeah, it's like a bad breakup. Like <laughs> you you got it. You got it. It's a mourning process. You kind of grieve a little bit, and you're like, yeah, you have no closure. Talk about, there was there was one. We were just talking about that a, f- mm. a few weeks ago. The one that they are going to come out with another season, but it's going to be like two more years. I can't remember what it was that we were talking about. Neither can I. <laughs> yeah, I don't that remember. <laughs> but what about you? I am still binge watching Ozark. Uh, so yes. I am obsessed right now with Ozark. I, they, yeah. they are getting, it's getting dirty and gritty and I love it. Yep. So uh, Ruth, Ruth is the um, Ugh, the girl. Badass. Yeah. She's the girl who was the actress for Inventing Anna. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Realize that. You look poor. I... <laughs> yes, but she just got waterboarded from the um, cartel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's oh, her map girl. right now. Girl, if you love Ruth, you're going to love it because... I love Ruth. Like, if yeah. I was going to be a gritty son of a bitch, like, I'd be Ruth. You're still watching it, though. Yeah. Okay, I won't it. literally... Put it on pause to come to this crime chat. <laughs> it's waiting. <laughs> it's waiting. Yes. Um, awesome. Other than that, I took a deep dive on some new stories for season two for crime chat. Ooh. I'm gonna be. I'm researching some haunted shit, girl. Some ghosts and goblins and creepy shit. And occasionally the unknown. And occasionally the unknown. <laughs> uh, but before we get into your crime chat today, yes. Before we get into all that love and romance, because if you notice behind behind us, I got my green screen set up and you know what, like my shirt, I didn't realize that like I'm wearing a green shirt and it may pick up on it. So I may like 
You may just see a head. Maybe may be a headless body. <laughs> it just be like a head floating. So guys, gotta get to Patreon and watch the video. Watch Natalie come and go. Just she disappears and reappears. <laughs> yes. So with your romance Valentine's, because Valentine's Day is this month. Yeah. Um, and I know your story today has to do with Valentine's Day. But I have a quick question for you. Yes. Aren't you curious on what astrological signs are more likely to be lovey-dovey or if you're more likely to be a murdery serial killer? Ooh, interesting. Mm. What sign are you? I'm a Libra. I'm a balancer. Are you? Are you mm. Are you sure? I uh, are you well, sure? I guess we're going to find out. Sure. <laughs> well, I'm a Gemini. You never know what you're going to get, girl. I'm like a box of chocolates. You never know. <laughs> yeah. So if you were born in the month of February, you are either an Aquarius or a Pisces. Mm-hmm. People born between February 1st and the 18th are Aquarius. Mm-hmm. And while be- people born between 19th and the 28th are Pisces, both signs tend to have a spiritual, artistic, peace-loving, and friendly demeanor. Mm-hmm. Both signs tend to be a uh, highly original people labeled offbeat and eccentric however they are also intellectual and probably not good with practical details or follow through my husband's an aquarius (laughs) okay (laughs) it is said so okay so the next part you know it has said to take some patience and understanding to be with a pisces and aquarius love you chris we love love you you, chris (laughs) however the intensity and depth of their love Make them immensely passionate and loyal. So, kudos, Chris. 100%. Kudos. Yes. Theastrology.com tell us that Aquarians, the symbol is the water bearer. Mm -hmm. And they are known for their cleverness and dry wit with their cool and collected exterior. The sign is of water, the water bearer. This produces natural curiosity. Mm -hmm. People who love to take take apart objects. Mm Sounds like a body. We just put body in that place. <laughs> People who want to take apart bodies, as well as their personalities, they they want to know what makes people tick. So they're the people that kind of like dissect you a little bit emotionally and like look at you and be like, I feel like you're talking about my husband right now. <laughs> <laughs> they are a product of Saturn. Mm. Aquarians are often not afraid to take intellectual or creative risks. Or to speak the unpopular opinion. Mm. Does that sound like Chris? In a way, yes. Yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. I will also say with him being a water bearer is also probably mm-hmm. why he has, he's, he's a dive oh, master. Right. So he's like, he loves, I mean, I love the water too, but like he's all about that. He is curious, mm-hmm. does have a tendency to speak unpopular opinions, but they're always backed mm-hmm. up with his intellect and always backed up with his reasoning behind it. His yes. delivery isn't always the best <laughs> Uh, but he, he he's just no shits, but like gets to the point, and then this is why. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah. And also, he's also a fireman, so he's also like fighting another sign mm. as a water bearer. He's <gasps> fighting the fire element. Wow. Putting that fire out. That's deep. Wait, that's deep. He, he tries to put my fire out. <laughs> oh, girl. So their mantra is, I know. <gasps> I know. I don't I know. think, I don't, I don't, I don't guess I know. Yeah. That's kind of where they come from. Mm-hmm. So now the Pisces symbol, that's the two fishes, mm-hmm. as we know. Mm-hmm. They're also ruled by water. The traits are derived from its uh, receptive feminine and yin qualities, making the, the sign lean towards inner awareness. The fishes have a mystical, intuitive dynamic in the core of their personality, 
a product of Neptune, they echo the seasonal awakeness of spirituality, dreams, and illusions. Hmm. How interesting is that? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I wonder if you were born on a leap year on February 29th, you're a Pisces. Mm. But I wonder, I just had this weird, you like, probably have like a year. I think with a leap year, you probably come into that rising sign or the cusp. Mm-hmm. So, so you may be a Pisces, but you may have traits of your cusp sign or your rising sign which could be the following month oh yeah so their their mantra is i believe (laughs) now i've i've known a couple of pisces in my life and they're Mm -hmm. usually very they're usually a little temperamental Hmm. pisces like they they're like gemini's where they have two sides yeah they can they're they like flow like yin and yang yeah and it's very important, I think, with Pisces, like Gemini, what I've noticed is, like, it really depends on your approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you approach a Gemini or a Pisces, if you if you approach them wrong, you're going to get what you give. Yeah. If you approach them right, like, we're not going to do the hard work for you. Right, right. You know? Yeah. You're either going to, if you're going to give us 2%, we're going to give you 2%. If you're going to, if you're going to deliver 80%, we'll, we'll, if we see, if we see effort, we give effort. Sure. I don't know. Give and take. You know what? It's dual personality. Okay, so question, Kat. Yes. How often do these signs become serial killers? Well, Mm. from the look on your face, I'm going to guess that it's quite... Yes, from a headless body. (laughs) 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 That is, it's quite up there, I'm going to guess. Well, a new study found that four signs, Scorpio, Cancer, Sagittarius, and Pisces, Account for forty percent of serial killers. Okay, as All opposed right, to the high. other what eight? Yeah, there's a bunch of other signs, but those are like the top serial killer zodiac signs. Mm. Most common signs: Scorpio, Cancer, Sagittarius, and Spices. Uh, Spices. Spices. <laughs> had talking about being on fire. Being on fire. Had forty-six serial killers in each. Okay, Aquarius okay. and Libra had forty-four. Capricorn, (laughs) 42. Oh, that's you. Okay. That's me. (laughs) Capricorn. Oh, my God. And you're married to an Aquarius. You do not want to mess with the Adams. Um, uh, The Adams family. (laughs) Capricorn has 42. (laughs) Virgo has 40. Leo, 39, which I feel is a little low. I feel like I thought Leo would be higher because Leos are the lion and they Mm -hmm. are aggressive, Mm -hmm. but very territorial and protective. So I thought that would be a little higher, but Mm. I don't know. What do I know? I'm a Gemini. Um, Aries (laughs) are 38. And shockingly, Gemini and Taurus are 27. So we don't have the kill rate that you do. (laughs) That's true. Shocking. (laughs) The deadliest sign are Capricorns. (laughs) Killing the most with 813 victims. Taurus killed the fewest with 204. Okay. Now this, this is all the, okay, so this is all, when I say killing, I mean that these are signs of actual convicted serial killers. Okay. Compiled, okay? Okay. The deadliest element is the water sign. Cancer, Pisces, and Scorpio count for the highest number of kill- mm. ki- killers and victims. Mm. Now, each sign's top killer. You ready? Yes. Cancer, Samuel Little, with 61 victims. Aquarius, Gary Ridgway, with 49 victims. Mm. Aries, Donald Harvey, with 37 victims. Okay. Pisces, John Wayne Gacy with 33 victims. <laughs> Libra, Bill Longley with 32 victims. Capricorn, Dean Coral with 28. The That's the candy man. man. Yeah. 
Sagittarius, Ted Bundy with 28. Oh, my God. My ex was a Sagittarius. All right. <laughs> Scorpio, Bell Gunnis. Am I saying it right? Gunnis? Bell, Bell Gunnis? Sure. Yeah. Bell Gunnis. Sure. Sounds good. Uh, with 25 victims. And Taurus, Earl Nelson with 22 victims. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Virgo, Gerald Stano with 22. Mm-hmm. Gemini... Jeffrey Dahmer with 17. Jeffrey Dahmer's Leo, a Gemini. Or was a Gemini. I know. <laughs> and Leo, Joseph Christopher with 12 victims. Hmm. So, Kat, how murderous are you, girl? Not very. Not very? I'd well, say in the middle of the road. Uh, I'm a balancer. You're a balancer? I'm not admitting a thing. Although, like, I'm very low on this list. I just shockingly low. Yeah. Kind of feeling like a slacker, but no, no. We're talking about murder. <laughs> so I hope that leads into your story a little bit, a little fun uh, facts yeah. about Valentine's Day, because I know you're going to get into the gore now. Yeah, no, that's a, no, that's super cute. I didn't know, uh, well, I mean, I kind of knew, I knew that was Aquarius, obviously. Mm-hmm. Aquarius is second on the list. Like, you have to tell Chris this. Like, you have to say, like, Chris, you know your Zodiac sign is, like, the most likely to kill. No, 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 Pisces is. But he's the second on the list with Gary Ridgway, 49 murders. That's a lot. He couldn't hurt a fly. He could, right. <laughs> I know. Okay, so getting into the story, we briefly talked about this case last week, uh, kind of closing out, mm-hmm. saying that we mentioned it in last year. So last year's episode for Valentine's Day, we did the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, right? Mm-hmm. And I talked about three cases leading up into it, just some other murderers that have happened on Valentine's. And this is one of the cases that, that I mentioned last year. So go back to last year's episode, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, mm-hmm. and listen to that. And you'll get a little bit of a teaser kind of too of, of what we're going to talk about today. Okay. But Because to, today I'm going to go ahead and bring you the deets about this brutal killing of a young couple over Valentine's Day in Durham, North Carolina, which coincidentally is the same town that Michael Peterson case was in, the staircase yes. guy. We talked about that one in our season premiere. Yes, and his eyebrows. Also in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so February 12, 1971, 20-year-old Patricia Ann Mann and her fiance, 18-year-old Jesse Allen McBain, were last seen leaving a dance and heading to a well-known Lava's Lane. Thirteen days later, they were found in the middle of the woods, bound to each other with rope, tied to a tree where their dead bodies were covered with leaves and debris. There was obvious evidence of torture through repeated strangulation and then ultimately their death. This story is not a typical love story, but their love will be found within the story. How would a petite nursing student and a large-statured college athlete meet their demise in such a sadistic way? Who would want to abduct, torture, and murder these two sweet lovebirds? And how is this case still unsolved, Chatters, after a half a century? Or is it? Chatters, listen up. We want to hear your thoughts after this story. I'm going to present you with some information about the investigation, the obstacles that they've kind of had to go through over the last 50-some years. I'm going to name some suspects in the case and then some key players in the investigation as well. You ready? Uh All right. Part one, the victims. Patricia Ann Mann, commonly known as Pat. I'm going to refer to her mostly as Pat throughout the story. She was born February 6, 1951, also in Aquarius. A beautiful, smart, and popular student, grew up in rural North Carolina, and she was described by her family as kind, shy, and overall just a good girl. 
She went to church and she followed the rules. Jesse Allen McBain, born February 15, 1952, in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Just over a year younger than Pat, he was attractive, he was strong, athletic, and voted most likely to succeed in high school. Jesse and Pat met each other when Jesse was a senior in high school and Pat was in her first year of nursing school at Watts Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. They met through mutual acquaintances and from that point on were just inseparable. Well, as much as you could be when you did live in the same town, you didn't have easily accessible car, and you didn't have cell phones or the internet. <laughs> so they kept in communication through letters and would make their plans to meet up with friends or go out on dates through regular old mail. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like, that's your only way of corresponding? Best way. Well, I agree. Mm-hmm. And I still like, I like to still send out, like, cards and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. It's just, I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's personal. Mm-hmm. It's more personal. As with many young adults, finding their way in long-distance relationships, they can do a number on a couple. Pat's cousin stated that Pat and Jesse were jealous of one another when they were apart, especially after Jesse started going to college at North Carolina State University, and he was pretty good-looking. He started to attract some uh, other ladies. However, these women also may have had a little less inhibitions about saving themselves for marriage and enticing Jesse. How dare they? Pat was not that way. She wanted to wait. Okay. Hmm. However tempting, Jesse loved Pat and then asked Pat to marry him. Mm-hmm. He provided her a ring and they had their parents' blessings. Aww. To keep their affection steamy until marriage, Pat and Jesse would frequent a favorite lover's lane area, which is where the horrific events would unfold. Mm. Part two. Oh that fateful night. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching a Netflix series. God damn it. <laughs> It's funny you say that. I'm going to mention something about that. I want to get my popcorn out right now. (laughs) (laughs) Am I setting this stage for you? Okay, good. So part two, that fateful night. Pat's nursing school had strict rules and would often host socials and dances to help students kind of have some fun, like in their rigorous curriculum. Like they were really strict on making sure they could only go certain places, could only wear certain attire. And I'm not, I, I imagine, I think nursing school is, ha- kind of always has been that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, in the 50s, it was pretty strict. So they yeah. tried to have some things to kind of keep morale up. When Pat told Jesse about Valentine's Day dance her school was having, Jesse originally said he would not be able to make it. Uh, unsure if this was Jesse's plan all along, he did end up surprising Pat uh, that night of the dance. Mm-hmm. Jesse shared a car with his brother, and they often had to, like, take turns. And then this night was not his night. So I don't know if he, like, finagled with his brother to, like, switch nights or whatever. But he ended up making a deal to trade days so he could go to the dance with Pat. He shows up. He surprises her. They drove to the dance. Now, she had just turned 20. If you think about the time frame, we talked about February a lot. So this was February 12th. She just turned 20 six days before. Jesse's birthday is February 19th. He was about to turn 19. And then in the middle, you've got Valentine's Day. Right. Who would not want to spend, like, this time frame with somebody you love, like, your sweetheart? That's, like, a perfect little time frame. Uh-huh. There was a picture taken of them that night, which I'm going to put on the Patreon. And it's just a very, of the few remaining pictures that are left from 50 years ago. There were about 50 people in attendance at the dance, and at about 11.30 p.m., Pat and Jesse decided to leave and head to their favorite lover's lane. The frequenters of this area called it Crowsdale Motel. It was quiet, it was secluded, a residential area, with, and it was popular among college students. This neighborhood specifically, they had a whole bunch of different cul-de-sacs, but not all the homes 
were occupied yet. It was a very new neighborhood. So maybe a couple people, you know, living in houses here and there, but they're just starting to put up all these houses. It was a very new neighborhood being built. If you drove into a cul-de-sac, it's like all the cul-de-sacs were occupied by these lovers. If you went to go drive into a cul-de-sac and there was a car there, you had to go find another cul-de-sac. <laughs> it was super cute how I, how I found, you know, read about it or whatever. This night was a typical winter night in North Carolina. Cold, misty rain. What two lovers wouldn't want to cuddle up and stay warm mm. in a private secluded area? Now, Pat's curfew was extended to attend the dance. It was extended to 1 a.m., but by the time 1 a.m. came around, there was no sign of Pat or Jesse. Fellow student nurses knew something was wrong because, after all, like I mentioned, she was responsible. She followed the rules. She, If she knew she had to be back by a certain time, she would be back by a certain time. Right. Oh. Family and friends went to the police, who then told them that they had to wait about 48 hours before they could be begin in opening up a missing persons case. And initially, the police weren't even that interested because they thought Jesse and Pat probably eloped. Mm -hmm. After all, they had permission. They had the intent. Pat's friends decided to look for her, and they drove around this area being built up in the suburbs, in these neighborhoods. The next day, Jesse's car was found by one of his friends in the Crowsdale Motel area. It was locked, and both Pat's sweater and purse were located inside of the car. Oh boy. Further search of the vehicle would illustrate how areas of the car were likely wiped down in order to erase fingerprints. Police then realized the couple may not have chosen to disappear at all. Two weeks go by, friends and family still searching heavily in the woods for this missing suit-to-be homicide case. They were all over local televisions, on uh, radio broadcasts, and there weren't very many people in this area who didn't know about Jesse and Pat. They all, everybody knew that they were missing. And they were not, okay, so they, they were still missing, nobody found them yet, they, okay. But on February 25th, 1971, mm. the bodies of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann were discovered in a wooded area covered by leaves and debris. Oh my god. Robert Kirby, a land surveyor for the federal government, was in that area trying to locate property markers. It was privately owned land at the time, but it's now referred to as Duke Forest. Kirby, the surveyor who found the bodies, originally thought Patricia's leg was that of a mannequin. Mm -hmm. As the land surveyor, all kinds of junk items he, you know, were found, all kinds of things, and, and actually, it wouldn't be the first time he saw a mannequin in the woods. <laughs> and initially think, thinking nothing of it, Kirby left and headed back to his car. However, he realized it didn't quite look right. He chose to return to the area where he found other body parts, and he also found Jesse's hand. Oh, my God. Soon as he realized uh, these weren't mannequins, he ran to the closest home he could find and called the police, saying, quote, I think it's the bodies of the two missing students, end quote. Oh. Kirby showed police where he located the bodies, and it now became a crime scene. They were tied behind their backs, and then kind of to each other with tightly knotted ropes around their wrists and then around their necks. This same rope was also used to tie them to a tree. They were both fully dressed and no signs of sexual assault. Okay. Evidence from the autopsy indicated they were strangled over a period of time. It wasn't one continuous pulling tight with the rope around their neck. It appeared the situation where the rope was tightened and then let go as they started to lose consciousness, let them regain their breath, regain consciousness, and then do it again. Torture. And then do it again, That's... over and over again. They were absolutely tortured. Oh my God! And there was no definitive like time of death or day of death either. I mean, it could have gone on for days. Oh. The autopsy also showed Pat's liver was ruptured, likely from either a punch or a kick or a stomp. And then Pat also received stab wounds to the chest, which they considered to be post mortem. 
At first, police thought it would have been more than one person, but the coroner was convinced it was just one. The initial assumption was that the killer came across them, got them out of their car, got him into his trunk, and then drove to the tree where they were found 13 days later. Rumors swirled around as the small community came to terms with the shocking deaths, with one report that the killer could be a doctor at the local hospital. It's long been suspected that the person who committed the brutal murders knew the remote area very well. They felt the suspect knew one or both of the victims, but the link has never been proven. There were some jurisdictional issues that popped up because they were found close to the Durham and Orange County borders. It was secluded and about a quarter mile into the woods where the end of the cul-de-sac was, where the border between Durham and Orange County was. So when the surveyor ran from where the crime scene was to a home, technically that was a different county. So there was some jurisdictional issues there. There were, I mean, it it was a populated area, like... College students knew about it. There were beer bottles, cigarette butts, mm-hmm. frequented, you know, by lovers. Right, right. And because of the border of the counties, multiple agencies were also involved. In addition to the Orange County and Durham County Sheriff's Offices, the Durham Police Department, the State Department of Investigation, or SBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, and what was then called the Department of License and Theft, which is basically now the DMV. They would also be investigative partners, but unfortunately... As with common practices during this time, not much collaboration and crosstalk happened, which delayed the overall big picture of an investigation. A profile was developed by the FBI and state uh, investigators on the potential suspect. They described it, and they put this actually in the local newspaper too. Athletic, 25 to 40 year old male, paranoid, grudge slaying, loner, above average education, excellent work record, childhood rejection, above all others, acted alone, took no unnecessary risks. And they thought likely it was a man who called the emergency room the night of the incident about the, about the uh, bodies that were found saying, hey, this is a way to say, look at me, right. look what I did. Right. Bring in kind of attention to themselves. But unfortunately, the case would go cold. February 9th, 1996, about 25 years after the murders, Jesse's mother received a call in the middle of the night from a payphone about a mile and a half away from her house. The caller said he killed Jesse. When she asked who it was, the caller gave his name. But we aren't ready to talk about the suspects just yet. Oh my God. (laughs) No arrest was made, and this case at this point was closed. Part three, the case resurfaces. Oh my God. Season three, Netflix. Okay. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. In 2011, 40 years after Jesse and Pat were murdered, Captain Tim Horn with the Orange County Sheriff's Office was contacted by one of Pat's cousins. Discussing the advancements of technology and DNA, they were basically posing, hey, on the evidence that was left on the rope and everything, is there any way that you would be able to now find who was there? Captain Horn agreed and helped petition the sheriff to reopen the case, and so they did. Cold cases are hard to solve because there's old pictures old documents, old files to go through, and very rarely does any like new information develop. It's basically a different way to put the puzzles together that help bring out more, you know, maybe unidentified information or something that might have not been thought of before. But much of this does rely on the preservation of evidence and how detailed the reports were. Horn was quoted in an Orange County newspaper saying, quote, this is a horrible crime. Who lives within five miles of the area, who was mean as a snake, or would have done such a thing, end quote. Horn continued as he started putting each of the agency suspects list together. So like in 2011, when they reopened the case, communication and collaboration was much, much better. Mm-hmm. So when they reopened the case, he started working with these other agencies, basically going, 
can you give me your files? Let me, let's, let's try and put this stuff together. And he said, quote, the names on the list, there was nothing to substantiate it. So each agency had like different lists of names. Mm-hmm. And he said it was just a name. So that slows them down a bit because they have to work through each name that each agency kind of came up with. So right, about hundreds of, of potential suspects or leads that were either never followed up with, you know, back then. So while they filtered through some of the, the, the logical suspects... A lot of the uh, suspects were cleared either through investigative steps or some with polygraphs. Previous investigators developed, they kind of, as they all started to put together, there was three that stood out between all the agencies that were never cleared. Previous documentation, you know, either polygraph or through investigative steps kind of cleared some of these individuals, but there were three that stood out. One suspect was above the other two. It was a doctor who knew Patricia, who worked at Watts Hospital, who's still alive, who's still a doctor, and who still lives in Durham, North Carolina. Oh boy. Okay. Now at this point, there isn't enough evidence for a warrant. While they may have narrowed it down to an individual suspect, the case is still open. Like even, so 2011, it's 2023 now, Mm -hmm. it's still an open investigation. So they have to maintain the integrity of the investigation. Part four. Oh, boy. The long dance. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) You're killing me. Okay. (laughs) Eric Pruitt, a writer and filmmaker, and Drew Adamick, a journalist, are both from Durham, North Carolina, and they came to the same conclusion. It was a single suspect, likely a doctor who worked at Watts Hospital where Patricia was a nursing student. In 2016, Pruitt and Adamic approached Captain Horn from the Orange County Sheriff's Office and told him about their research that had uh, that they had looked into this investigation. And while initially they were turned away, their partnership would actually help move the case along. Pruitt later wrote an article for Indie Week, which is like a news magazine in Durham, and he details how their partnership formed. I read this article. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, and I'll get into some of their stuff okay. here. But their first initial meeting, so Pruitt's initial meeting with Adamic to come together and say, hey, let's look into this case. And then their approach to Captain Horn, Pruitt in this article discussed how they continued to look into the case after their initial request to gain access to the investigation and its files was denied. What they did is they cross-referenced public records, they were scanning through microfish at the library, and they looked into a theory of the suspect being a doctor who may have known Pat. So what they did is they went back to Watts Hospital and looked at every doctor who had a record. And then they started going off of there. Every doctor that had a record that worked at Watts Hospital at the time were all crossed off their list but one. With this ammunition, they reapproached Captain Horn with their conclusion and being a single suspect. Okay. So the three met, uh, Pruitt, Adamic, and Captain Horn, and they met at a coffee shop where Horn again declined access to the case file. But five minutes after they departed, Horn called Pruitt and said, hey, can you meet me at my office tomorrow? They wanted to talk to him, wanted him to meet up with a lawyer at the police department, sign some non-disclosure agreements before they can hand the case file over to them. So Pruitt and Adamic wanted to do more than just print media on the investigation. They wanted to help bring light to this cold case. And they wanted to make a podcast. Okay. While the investigation was being opened up to them, they would also take part in the actual investigation, which never happens. And I can tell you, this never happened. <laughs> so it is basically, it was a way that they were able to document and have an outside look into a very old case. 
maybe they caught something that the police didn't catch. This is very, and they were frequently reminded, like, this never happens, so don't get used to it, right? Right. But at this point in time, what are they, what's the risk in it, right? So, what changed Captain Horn's mind? Well, the single suspect's name they provided was the very same name of that single suspect that was on the top of the three list. Oh, okay. The doctor who worked at Watts Hospital. Coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> then, then, And what got it was the name had never been released to the public. It was never in any wow. newspapers, anything like that. Pruitt and Adamic would agree with Horn to help build a case against the three original suspects because... Captain Horn wanted a very calculated method on ruling out suspects and not just focusing on one. Basically, let's investigate all three, Uh and by elimination, essentially, only one should stand out. So that's what they did. Yeah, and kudos to the uh, detectives from 1971 because they did do some homework where they have actual viable suspects. Wow, wow. Yeah, yep. So in Horn's mind, there were three suspects because he didn't want to, and, and I think in, in being an investigator myself, a lot of times you have your theory uh-huh. and we we stay so like hard focused on that that we don't, aren't open to other things. So Horn was very open to these three people are standing out above the rest. I think there is one primary of the three, but let's look into all of them. Okay. There are people who were still alive that had information and put the pieces of the puzzle together. And this is what he was kind of pleading, basically. If you know something, tell us. However insignificant, mm-hmm. or maybe as we're talking about it, you forgot about something, and it, it, it may mean more than you think. And that and that goes for any investigation. So Horn actually used Pruitt and Adamic to help get this message out, come forward, help bring light to the overall picture of the puzzle, and that could help eliminate or include mm-hmm. any of the three suspects. So as Pruitt and Adamic conducted their interviews, they interviewed family members, friends, witnesses, those that were still alive. Because mm-hmm. again, this was like, at this point, it was 40 years after the murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had an interesting approach because they were journalists and they weren't investigators. Mm-hmm. Yet cops come into your door. I mean, people react differently. Like, hey, I'm a journalist. Right. Or, hey, I'm a cop. Like, right. the, people are, it depends, right? right? It depends on how they approach them. But many previously people who were interviewed had passed away at this point to include other agencies, investigators that worked on the um, on the case. The highlight, Pruitt said, was when they interviewed the primary suspect. Wary of the press, wanting to stay out of the public's eye, the doctor continued to refuse to cooperate with the investigation and often denied any interviews. Armed with hidden microphones, Pruitt and Adamic actually ambushed the doctor at his medical practice. The result? an eight-episode series podcast called The Long Dance. I highly recommend it, Chatters. Yes. Okay. A lot of the things that I'm saying with the research that I did, they tell the story so well mm-hmm. in the podcast. Now, each episode is like an hour plus, so it's a chunk of time. <laughs> and I, So I did a lot of listening. I didn't listen to act, didn't every single thing. Right. Because our podcast, we try to keep to under an hour. Yeah, Crime Chat will sum it up real quick, okay? <laughs> We're going to sum <laughs> We're it up, gonna... right? <laughs> so in that article that I mentioned from Indie Week, Pruitt wrote the following, and I'm, I'm going to quote it. Mm-hmm. Quote, as we were wrapping up production on The Long Dance, we got word that Carolina's Cold Case Coalition had taken an interest. They asked Horn and me to present the details at a forum in Greensboro where an MVAC machine was 
which analyzed DNA owned by the Guilford County Sheriff's Office, would be presented. It took 45 days for Bode Cellmark Labs to analyze the DNA on a 47-year-old piece of rope. As we waited, we entertained several offers from major media corporations, end quote. Now, part of this was Captain Horn in trying to get used, not just use these guys, but trying to go out to other productions such as Netflix to get a series made to be able to tell the story. And some of, one of the, it was a video I watched, or maybe I was listening into the podcast where he actually was being turned down by one of the agencies. Really? And he was like, well, I must say like, it's disappointing, but I understand, you know, but this case is like how do you turn this case down? I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm disappearing again. Wait, how do you turn this case down as Netflix? I mean, seriously. I don't know if it was Netflix. I don't remember. I don't think it was Netflix. Okay. I don't remember which one it was. But yeah, so he, you could see, like, you could tell just, like, by the sound of his voice how disappointed he was. Mm. But by 2018, as new advancements of DNA testing and technology developed, the MVAC machine that Pruitt was talking about, Horn had hoped that a profile would emerge. They tried this MVAC machine, which is basically a wet vacuum DNA collection system. Right. And it was originally designed to identify pathogens in food samples. Only 80 of these exist in the entire world, and 40 of them are in the U.S. (laughs) It can extract DNA from various locations and surfaces, and Horn said that he had hoped it would extract enough DNA to get a profile from the knots, you know, that were used to tie tie up and torture uh, Jesse and Patricia. Okay, okay. He said, quote, it's basically an industrial type of carpet cleaner. It sprays the solution out and that fluid is captured, condensed down into a filter, and then all the DNA profiles on that have to be extrapolated. Pruitt then said in his article, quote, but on June 14th, the results came back inconclusive. The amount of DNA that could be extracted was too minuscule to be successfully compared against all profiles, end quote. And this came at like their very end of their podcast, like of of getting the research and stuff for their story to do on this podcast. Horn, however, Captain Horn is not giving up. He said, quote, somewhere on the rope, the DNA of the suspect is on there, end quote. Captain Horn told Pruitt and Adamic in 2012, the initial box of evidence was reviewed with a very fine tooth comb. Now, referencing the Long Dance podcast, like I mentioned, it's like nine, ten hours of storytelling, conclusions, mm. assumptions. The interviews that they did are recorded. Right. Like of the family and friends and stuff that are on there. Sometimes telephone recordings. Sometimes people change, they, you know, altered the sound of the voice or changed the name because they didn't, they all said they wanted to participate, but they didn't want to mm-hmm. have their name out there. That's deep. It's thorough. You guys, you just, I can't say enough. Like, you guys have to go out and listen to Mm -hmm. it. It's fantastic. Part five, the last part. Mm -hmm. The three suspects. The finale. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Suspect number one, James Brannon Ray. Born in Columbia, South Carolina, just down the road, James had a rough upbringing. He began stealing cars as a teenager, and before he could finish high school, his father actually committed suicide, notably scarring James for the rest of his life. He was in and out of jail for many, many years, unable to hold a job, and would disappear often on his family, both his, like, at home, and then, like, after he got married, and girlfriends, and kids, and all that stuff, he would just, poof, be gone. Uh Pruitt and Adamic concluded that James was good at three things, stealing cars, breaking out of prison, and chasing the ladies. Oh boy. James appeared to have motive, means an opportunity to commit this crime. 
He worked at Watts Hospital as a nurse's aide and orderly. Uh He was interviewed in the initial investigation. He completed two polygraphs, both resulting in inconclusive results. But there was never enough hard evidence to charge James in the murders of Pat and Jesse. So two days before Jesse and Pat went missing, James visited a neighbor and claimed that his car was stuck in a ditch. He asked the neighbor for a rope, saying he needed to borrow it to help free his car, pull his car out of the ditch. Uh The neighbor, who owned a roofing company, said the rope that James wanted wouldn't be strong enough, so he declined to let James have it. About 15 minutes later, the owner of that roofing company, his son, told his father that same man came back and stole the rope. This just so happened to snap on James into two pieces after James tried to use it to pull his car out. This is important because after the bodies were discovered, authorities began trying to trace the rope and its origin. It was like it was a chickle rope. I don't know the different types of rope, but it was a chickle rope mm-hmm. and about 100 feet worth. All various types of occupations use this rope, including roofers. The owner of the roofing company who was then interviewed was quoted saying, you found it. You found my rope. He only lived 3.1 miles away from the crime scene. Oh. Now, James's car was never looked at because he sold his car immediately after the bodies were found. Hmm. It was a 1956 black and white Chrysler, and he sold it to Thompson or Morgan Motors. James talked to this case with Thompson, and Thompson tested, well, was interviewed later and said that James knew about the cuts on the body. He knew about knots. He said he was a paramedic and he took classes and he basically, he also said he knew Pat. So he was like talking to a witness who was t- putting himself as, at the crime scene or like as a viable suspect. I like him as the suspect right now. <sighs> it gets better. It's making sense. Okay. Um, boy. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> this is only suspect number one. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> So James also told Thompson that Pat wasn't near as nice as everybody thought she was because she liked men. She dated other men. She dated me. James said he knew Jesse also, and he called Jesse an ass. (laughs) But he also said that he was, James said he was at the Valentine's Day dance that night. He wasn't the only one he told of that he knew Pat. He told some girlfriends that he dated that he also had dated Pat before. He worked with the rescue squad at night. Sometimes he would sleep out in the car at the hospital at night. So he basically was saying he knew her comings and goings. Yeah. But James had an alibi. James was on a date that night, and this was corroborated by his date until about 11 p.m. After midnight, a resident near the crime scene in that Crowsdale motel area, right, said that James knocked on his door. James said he ran out of gas. He asked if he would take him to go get gas, put in a gas can, and then take him to his car to fill up his car, which was left at a nearby underpass. Mm -hmm. James asked if they could drive through the backside of a golf course, which you could actually see from this resident's home, like out the front, you could see like the golf course. So he wanted to drive like around it and around the back part. And if you were to do that, you would actually directly pass the cul-de-sac where Pat and Jesse were parked. This was the night of the, in- the night they went missing. As they approached James' car near the underpass, he told the neighbor, he told the owner of the house who was taking him to stop short and not to approach the car. He did, for whatever reason, he didn't want him to come close to the car. Later, that man, the gentleman who took James that night, was interviewed, and he said, I put two and two together. Pat and Jesse might have been in the trunk of that car. Okay. The clock read 12, 12.30 a.m. Uh. when he got home. So what happened after that is a secret that James took with him to the grave. Some also said James' character had changed immediately following the incident. His mood changed. He became depressed. He avoided any additional conversation about the investigation. 
like he would completely not want to talk about it. Why would this happen? Was he known to have to, or was he known to give Pat unwanted suggestions in how to treat a patient or mock her appearance? Or was he turned down by her? He had, so what happened is he had a habit of leaving work early and not telling anybody he was leaving. He was disciplined in the past for it. And he also got in trouble for wearing his uniform after hours in like, I guess, around town. Like just, like my husband would only wear his uniform on duty, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But he, I guess he was, it was a way for him to like have some sort of authority or like status. I don't know. So as a result, James of of James insubordination, Mm -hmm. he was actually fired January 31st, 1951. So was that 12 days before they went missing? Pruitt and Adamic found themselves driving to the home of one of James' children, Ricky Ray, who was only two years old when Jesse and Pat were killed. They were armed with a DNA kit, two cheek swabs. Pruitt and Adamic were hoping Ricky's DNA may provide the vital ingredient because his father was a suspect. Now, while Ricky had lived in various states, he now resides in Florence, South Carolina, just down the road. (laughs) Ricky Ray said that he tried to find his father for years and never knowing him when he was growing up. Then James all of a sudden just showed up at his house when he was living in Illinois. He showed up on the doorstep in 1990. Ricky said that was the last time that he saw his father because he was taken out of handcuffs from his home. And I'll tell you what happened. (laughs) James showed up that night at Ricky's house with a full beard, looked like he had been through hell and back. He was just like completely disheveled. And he said, son, I want to patch things up. I want to stay here. I want to help you. I want to build a relationship. And James stayed for about four days. Now, Ricky, who was married at the time, his ex-wife was not so accepting and she was kind of leery of James. She should be. She did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She did some digging, alerted local authorities because she found out that he was an escaped prisoner out of Colorado. When the cops showed up, um, they showed Ricky his father had like a bunch of fake IDs and they showed him like pictures of all these fake IDs. One of those fake IDs was in Ricky's name. So what the fuck? Like, yeah. Yeah. So James told Ricky as he was being taken away in handcuffs, I'm sorry. And then they never said another word. He never saw him again. Basically, James MO is arrest, escape, parole, arrest, escape, parole, and so on. Mm. Ricky never heard from his father. And James died in 2009. No history of violence, albeit rugged and moral behaviors. Police could not find any confirmation of any history of violence, any evidence James was ever, you know, violent towards other people. And most said that he actually wouldn't hurt a fly. He was just made bad choices. I said the same thing about PTA, B- BTK. Right? <laughs> I, I honestly, people's perceptions sometimes are really off. You know. It's true. It's always like, oh yeah. my God, Jeffrey Dahmer, he was such a nice neighbor. There was nothing wrong with him. But his apartment stank. And his apartment stank. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? It was James? I, I, I'm I hooked on James right now. You got me hooked. All right, girl, convince me All of right. another person. Come on. <laughs> Let's see what you think about the next suspect. Number two, Dr. James Stephen Walter Wilson. That's a name. We're going to call him Jim. That's a name. And it's a name. It's a name. <laughs> We're going to call him Jim because the first guy we just talked to, yeah. his name was James, mm-hmm. and he went by James. This guy is James, but he goes by Jim. Okay. So. Enter Jim. Born in Cannyville, Kentucky, about an hour southwest of Louisville, he was described as intelligent, creative, brilliant, charismatic, and entertaining. He was also described as manipulative, vindictive, intimidating, controlling, arrogant, and volatile. Yeah, Aries. 
<laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> oh, we gotta look that up. Okay. <laughs> Schizophrenic. Actually, okay, that's Gemini. <laughs> way that he's. <laughs> All of these descriptions were by people who loved him the most. Oh boy. Okay. So not only did this erratic, impulsive doctor have ties to Patricia Mann, he also had a history of domestic abuse. On October 27, 1961, the body of Betty Gail Brown, who was murdered in Lexington, Kentucky, was strangled in the front seat of her car. She was a Transylvania University student, and she was strangled with her bra strap. Robbery was not a motive, nor was she sexually assaulted. Sound familiar? Like Jesse and Pat's murder, this case, it is still unsolved. Mm -hmm. Jim talked about the case and claimed he knew all about it. He was questioned in the murder as a person of interest, as a doctor. Ten years later, the co-ed couple died similarly. Mm. Again, the killer may be a doctor and likely gets away. I don't know. I I, I didn't look into that one too much about why they thought it might have been a doctor Mm. at the time. Yeah. Uh, But that kind of was their theory. But either way, it seemed to be very similar yeah maybe her connection because of the nursing school but like he they didn't they weren't killed in a fashion that would only narrow it down to a doctor no right? and i'm sure there were other things that yeah I, I didn't look too much into that i actually wrote it down for something to look into <laughs> maybe for a future one because it's still an unsolved case in in um kentucky but on the night jesse and pat went missing the wilsons so jim dr jim and his family mm-hmm. and well his wife They were going over to have dinner with friends of theirs, the Grams. Everyone was there except for Jim. When he showed up, he showed up around midnight. He was described as being erratic, wild, excited, and peering out the windows. Now, the Wilsons only lived about 400 yards away from the crime scene. Would he have known about the hidden cul-de-sac in this newly developed neighborhood? Probably. This neighborhood About the lover's lane. Yeah, this neighborhood seems like it was hopping that night. Uh, Well... It was Valentine's Day weekend. So Jim told Donnie Graham, the the husband of the, their friends, mm-hmm. said, hey, we'll have to go back out and check out the crime scene. And as they did, they actually went back and walked through because it was so close. He said, quote, if these trees could talk, end quote. Wow. Oh, boy. Jim taught respiratory therapy at Waltz Hospital and apparently had a thing for blonde women. Witnesses claim that Jim had approached Pat and asked her out, but was upset when she declined. So, 1978, a complaint was made against Jim. Martha Graham. Yes, that's right. The same friends of the Wilsons, the Grahams, for a death threat. So, originally, they were friends in Kentucky, and then they both moved to North Carolina. Martha said she met Jim while she was a student at the University of Kentucky. She was getting her master's in physiology and biophysics. I think he was getting his PhD. And then, but they ended up leaving Kentucky and heading to the Carolinas. And her husband, Martha's husband, went to Duke. And she was getting her doctorate at University of North Carolina. Martha also said that she went to school with Jim's sister. So it was like a lot of familial ties and like they had known each other, especially moving into a new place. Like if you know somebody that's already there, you're likely to associate with them, right? So they were friends for a while. Uh Martha's complaint of this death threat would stem from a note that said, quote, you're going to die. You don't know when and you don't know where, but you're going to die. Oh my God. Martha actually recognized the handwriting. The note was like on her front door or like on the doorstep when she found it. She recognized the handwriting and she went into her library in her home and pulled out a book that Jim had dedicated to her and signed for her about a year before that. She's like, motherfucker. Smart girl. This is Jim's handwriting. Smart girl. (laughs) Yeah. So at this point... And at this point, Martha said in in the interview, um, which was actually on the podcast, she said that he was starting to lose his mind 
and he became unhirable. Like he was just becoming so erratic. So this was 1978 when this happened and the murders were in 1971. So this was like several years after. Right. Martha also said that Jim made several threats to the staff at the University of North Carolina and he was taken to a psychiatric ward. Jim managed to convince a psychiatrist that he found the Lord and it was a strange situation for him, but he was repenting. Martha said anyone Jim had a problem with ended up, they were blind. Whether it was trying to get freaky deaky with him and they turned him down yeah. or whatever. Any, any woman in a position of authority also pissed him off. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't care for feminism nor equal rights for women. Mm-hmm. And while at Duke, Jim actually assaulted a young woman in the parking lot one afternoon <laughs> while he was on his lunch break. And he threatened the life of the head of the anatomy department because they were opposed of what he was teaching. And he was he was actually, they go into a, little, a great detail in the podcast. He was writing a book about anatomy and it was just how it was written about the female anatomy was absolutely inappropriate. And he was trying to teach this in the class. So other people, and it was inappropriate. So the heads of the departments were like, there's no fucking way we're going to teach this. So he was pissed off about it because they weren't teaching what he was, what he wrote about. It was a really, really, really kind of long thing part to it Mm -hmm. but still significant he he just opposed any he was anybody who opposed his teachings was targeted and a lot of them were blonde females yes he's yuck (laughs) patricia mann was also a blonde female a nursing student at watts hospital Mm -hmm. did jim have a vendetta against pat Mm. he made advances were they rebuffed is that enough to kill somebody and her boyfriend or fiance now, during the interviews, Prue and Adamic and even Horn would interview it saying plenty of people who knew who Jim was, but only a few would actually speak of him just because they were afraid. Like, they acted like he was still going to come out and do something. Yeah. Jim died in 2009 from heart failure, but people still spoke about him as if they were afraid of him. You know something? I know somebody like Jim. And yeah. I know how people are so afraid of confrontation that they mm-hmm. do exactly what you're saying. So this is very mm-hmm. believable for me. Like, all right, yeah. All right. Well, so what do you think about Jim? Oh, God. Is he up there with James? He is. Did he, does he have means, motive, and opportunity? Killing me. Yeah, yeah. All right. He's moved well, into slot I mean, number one now. Well, before you decide, let's talk about the last suspect. I feel like I'm in an emotional, abusive relationship with you right now, and you're not giving me a straight answer. <laughs> okay. Enter in. Suspect number three, Mm. Dr. Robert Carl Britt. We're just going to call him Britt. Britt was from Lumberton, North Carolina, which uh, was a prominent name in the area. The last name, surname of Britt was just like huge and prominent. It's like, and here in my small town of Sumter, South Carolina, there's some prominent names. Like if you have that last name, you like you somebody or you, you family to somebody kind of thing. Right. So Brit was just one of those names and actually went back to the 1700s. Several buildings and streets were named after the Brits. Now, Robert Carl Brit, who actually, he went by the name of Carl. Carl. The Walking Dead. <laughs> Carl. He was the son of a prominent hospital administrator. He accelerated in high school, Boy Scouts, Sea Scouts. I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently it is. Uh-huh. He was an accomplished high school football kicker. Like, like setting high school records kind of thing. Like, really, really good. Mm-hmm. He married 
and went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and graduated medical school in 1961. On September 9th of 1961, it was a moonless Saturday morning, Britt was headed to Lumberton for a family wedding. It was about 1.30 in the morning. When he approached a bridge, he saw a man standing in the middle of the road. He said he did everything that he could to avoid the man, but he hit the man, carried him on the hood for about 70 yards before being thrown over the back of a car. The man was dead, obviously. It's far to drive. The the man on your <laughs> right okay. like stop like what do you think i don't know, you know like he's, he's bowling pin he's trying to wiggle him off he's just trying to wiggle him off he's just like ah. <laughs> i mean i could see trying to wiggle somebody off like one if it was a zombie or somebody right. else like trying to kill you yeah golly yeah so 70 yards <laughs> The male victim who had deceased, he left behind a wife and four kids with one on the way. His wife filed a wrongful death action suit against Britt, but after funeral costs and lawyer fees, three years later, the victim's family received $1,000. Oh my God, that's disgraceful. That's, that's disgraceful. Yeah. Okay. And Pruitt and Adamic also said there were no police reports. Like, all the research and stuff they went to find it, no autopsy report could be found, no police report. The only evidence that this actually happened was it was found in the local newspaper. Is is this because people were trying to cover it up? Maybe. Ooh. His family is very prominent. The Brits. It's the Brits. <laughs> Brit didn't come into play as a person of interest in the murders of Jesse and Pat until about October of 1971. So it was in February, so eight months or so later. Doctors at Durham's Medical Arts Building read the police profile, which I read earlier, um, that they published in the newspaper, the FBI profile, right? Uh, suspect, 25 to 40 years old. This is who they're looking for. So when doctors at this Medical Arts Building read that, they automatically thought of Brit. Immediately, they alerted former co-workers, like, and said, hey, do you think this? Yeah, yeah, this is. So they, they informed police. More than just his passive attacks on co-workers, Britt had slashing of tires, stealing white coats, vandalism onto the property, but more aggressive attacks included threats of physical harm and brandishing a gun. They were heavily documented also in the case file. This, like, in these several incidents that had happened mm -hmm. with Britt. Also documented in the case file was an incident two years after Jesse and Pat were murdered. Britt attempted to kidnap two teenagers, and he pulled out a gun. He told them he was a police officer and ordered them to get in the car. One of the teenagers, who's now an adult and was interviewed on this podcast, said that the alleged police officer seemed to be small, not like a really large man, but he saw the gun. Like, he was... He was focusing so much on the gun, he really didn't have a good physical description to get police. But with the man saying that he was a police officer, the kid's like... So basically, the one teenager got so close to the gun that he wouldn't have been able to pull the trigger, like when he pulled the gun out on him. Okay. It would make it difficult for him to actually shoot. Okay. So... He did describe the suspect as losing control, and basically because the teenagers weren't backing down, he was just like, well, fuck it, I'm leaving then, and just drove away. And he said that they were, neither one of them were actually intimidated by Brit. They memorized a license plate, called the authorities initially to complain to the police about one of their officers, but they were told after they ran the plate that it was not a police officer. License plate HFX764. The plate came back to Brit. The address was Colwood Drive, just around the corner oh. where Jesse and Pat went missing. Oh my god. Some reports say that Britt was at Watts Hospital on the night of the dance. Now, if that's the case, he would have had to have driven past the cul-de-sac where Jesse and Pat were. The teenagers also pointed Britt out in a photo lineup. It's the teenagers that he attempted to kidnap. Okay. 
Now, th this actually kind of reminds me of the whole kidnapping thing of the Gerard Schaefer story. Oh, yeah. The one in Florida, That's... on the east coast of Florida, where he was saying, hey, I'm... But he actually was a cop, but he was like, I'm a cop. You shouldn't be hitchhiking. Let me drive you. And then he right. would torture them. And... Yeah. yeah. A sick person. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Episode 27, mm -hmm. Chatters. Yes. Go back and listen to it. <laughs> Britt was also known for his erratic, angry behavior. There was now an official record of Britt impersonating a police officer and attempting to kidnap teenagers. Britt was questioned about the attempted abduction and denied any involvement, stating, quote, I hope you catch the guy that did this to those boys because he sounds like the same guy who killed those kids a few years ago, end quote. And now when he was asked, what kids? Like, what kids are you referring to? He said, quote, the girl who was a student nurse at Watts and her boyfriend, end quote. No child... So no, not even, so police, had he not said anything, police probably wouldn't have linked the two together. But he said something as a way to be like, look what I did and got away with it. Arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. But it wasn't enough. They, they documented it. Again, did a great job with this documentation in the case file, but no charges were ever filed against Britt for the kidnapping. Right. Even though he was interviewed, basically, oh, it wasn't me. I don't know no. what you're talking about. So when Horn, as I mentioned, when he reopened the case, it went with a fine tooth comb. Mm -hmm. He saw this and he questioned that statement decades later and was like, why would he say that? They may not have connected the two, as I mentioned, the two crimes together, but his behavior at the hospital was awkward. His statement seemed outlandish. And Horn, he was just like, I've got so many questions. Like, I need to talk to this guy. Yeah. So... January 12th, 1995, Britt basically was known to be violent again. He attacked a driver, Susan Higginbottom, in a road rage incident. He approached her car, pulled her out of her car, assaulted her, called her a feminist bitch, spat on her, and threw her to the ground where he continually kicked her for dozens of times. Oh my God. At one point, Britt removed his shoe in order to hit her with it. Stinky foot. Like, <laughs> shoe. So in his defense, in court, mm. basically, he said, I confronted her because of her lackless driving and she attacked me. She was so good. She must have known martial arts. As ridiculous as that sounds, he was actually convicted okay. <laughs> of assault. Okay. However, in 1998, after his appeals, the incident was deemed mutual assault and uh, the conviction was actually overturned. Wow. One last link. The 1996 phone call. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, yes. To Jesse's mother mm -hmm. saying that I killed Jesse. Mm -hmm. When she asked who it was, the caller said his name was Dr. Britt. The call was not recorded. Oh it was never proven that Britt made the phone call. And according to the case file, Britt was never questioned about the phone call. Couldn't trace it. They couldn't find anything with that. I guess back then, 1996. Was... 96. So after, so they interviewed... Uh, I think it was Jesse's sister mm. and basically she was saying that they did tap the phone there was there were documents in the case file also of wiretapping because um, around the anniversary of their deaths they would get a lot of calls but this call came in, it was like June or something, 1996. It wasn't in the anniversary month, so they weren't really expecting it. So it wasn't an active tap at the time. Okay. All right. Oh, boy. They did tap it after that to see if he would call back again, but there was no other. And of the numerous phone calls that they did get at the home, this is the only one who had a confession and provided their name. Okay. Very few people actually ever stood up to Dr. Britt. He was a bully and he got away with just about anything that he did. Mm -hmm. On April 26, 2011, this was the very first time Britt was interviewed regarding the murders of Jesse and Pat. 
And even though his name had been in the case file for years, this was the very first time about the actual murders of Jesse and Pat. They did a cold approach. They knocked on his door. Dr. Britt let them in. He was cordial. He had a smile on his face. They sat down in the living room. And interesting enough that Captain Horn said that Britt never actually asked him why they were there. Usually, like, cops knock on your door, like, hey, can we talk to you? Yeah, sure, come on in. What's this all about? Right. He never asked why. He had somewhat of a nervous demeanor. Mm -hmm. And then as, you know, kind of getting through rapport and, you know, some of the initial, like, conversational pieces or whatever, they said they wanted to talk to him about the McMahon and Mann murders. Britt said, quote, that happened 40 years ago. And in 40 years from now, none of this will even matter. End quote. (gasps) Who says that? A guilty person says that. (laughs) (laughs) So the other investigator that was with Captain Horn, her name was Dawn Hunter. She was an investigator with a special victims unit. Dr. Britt liked to be the smartest guy in the room. Mm. He liked to be dominant. Mm -hmm. And again, didn't really care much for females in a position of authority. So when Hunter would ask questions, Dr. Britt would ignore her mm. and primarily talk to Captain Horn. He like she would ask him a question and he would look over here and answer. Now I have had one interview conducted that way before, yeah. but it it was a sexual assault. Mm. It was a male on male sexual assault, and the the male victim did not feel comfortable talking to a female, so he talked to my male partner. Right. Which I get. Like, I totally get that, right? But this was blatant. Like, this was... Yeah. It was obvious to both Horn and Hunter that Britt was nervous by their presence. His lips were, like, visibly quivering. Mm -hmm. He was visibly shaking. And the investigators knew that Britt knew who Pat was. So they asked him about it. They knew she... Like, he knew that she was at Watts Hospital from talking to other witnesses and the documents in the case file. But he adamantly denied knowing who she was. Knowing they weren't going to get anywhere with him. And now, this is non-custodial interview right cold approach they're in his home he's not in custody they didn't read him his rights they're just talking to him at this point they knew they weren't going to get a confession right so captain horn mentioned that he knew hey dr Britt, you're a busy guy i don't want to take much of your time you know we'll go ahead and you know kind of step out of your hair well this changed dr Britt's demeanor a little bit and he got a little bit more confident like ha 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 you guys aren't going to catch me mm-hmm. but as they started to leave Britt mentioned to the investigators hey if you guys need anything i'm available you know call me any time you've got my contact information captain horn paused turned around and he's like you know what as a matter of fact can we get your dna and maybe take a polygraph we just want to eliminate you as a suspect it's like the old um oh what's that old show columbo like the columbo moment peter falk yeah he was the best yeah oh wait well yeah while i'm here you yeah actually don't mind doing that right yeah i love him (laughs) Needless to say, Britt freaked out. He lost his composure, and he was actually so upset that he excused himself from the room. And he's like, I'll be right back. Now, as a a police officer, Captain Horn and Don Hunter, they're thinking, we know he carries a gun. He's brandished it before. Yeah. He's a murder suspect. We ain't going to be taking no chances with this guy coming around blaring a gun at us. Right. So they were well aware of this potential danger. Uh They were prepared. Hunter actually pulled out her gun from her holster and, like, put it underneath her notebook. Okay. But they were prepared just in case he did come out with a gun. So when Britt regained his composure, they realized he did not have a gun and instead he handed over his business card. He said, yes, I'll provide my DNA, lips quivering, body trembling. But just as they get back to their car and go a few minutes, 
minutes down the road, somebody calls, identifies themselves as his attorney, Dr. Britt's attorney, and said, he will not be providing you with a DNA sample. You will not contact my client again. Oh, really? The win in this whole thing, they caught him off guard, and they observed his authentic initial reaction Mm -hmm. to the information. Yeah. An arrest can't be made because there was no physical evidence in any of the three suspects. And Dr. Britt himself, he did refuse to provide a DNA sample. He is the only one of the three still alive. He still remains the prime suspect in this case and the murder of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann. But to sum up this case, I'm going to end on a quote from Captain Horn. Mm. He said, quote, what a horrible tragedy, especially for young kids starting their life to be kidnapped and abducted from a lover's lane, transported to a second lover's lane, and then marched up a small embankment, bound and tied to a tree, and strangled, end quote. And that's my story of the Valentine's Day murders. Oh, my God. The open investigation, but we all know who did it. Well, wait a minute. I have a question. I have a technical yeah. question. So, sure. can they collect DNA in a public spot? Like, if he threw a yeah. cigarette or a coffee cup or something. The, the problem is the... A couple years ago, when they tried to extract through that MFAC system, the DNA was so minuscule it didn't develop a profile. Today. Well, today. I mean, and potentially down the, you know, down the road, they still have it in evidence. Uh So if there's some sort of technology that would be, but yes. I am pretty sure, just by listening to some of it, that they there are ways, let's say he's sitting in a park, you know, sipping on a whatever, mm-hmm. you know, Coca-Cola in the park, throws a cup in the trash, it becomes yeah. abandoned and it's technically not your property anymore, which is also why, so when you take your trash can, like to be picked up by the trash man going around like in your neighborhoods or whatever, and you take it to the curtilage, right. technically that's abandoned property because it's on a public road. Right. So that's why a lot of times like we... I'm done that before we go through and we collect the trash cans and start going through people's my dna is <laughs> all over the place at that point <laughs> i know right you know yeah. exactly yeah oh my so gosh. yes i'm pretty sure they do have his dna through other covert means yeah potentially mm. he they basically they was told you, you can't have it now i thought i thought i heard something or i might have read something and it could be because i didn't quite finish the whole long dance mm-hmm. but i he may actually be living in florida now oh god don't they all they all fucking come to florida <laughs> i'm just saying but that is a i mean bless jesse and and pat huh. I, if i just want to say how adorable it is that jesse allen mcbain jam jam and Patricia Ann Mann, Pam, Pam were meant to be together, Jam and Pam, both on Earth and for eternity. Oh, rest in Now, and Jesus. huge props, again, oh. to Pruitt and Adamic for doing the relentless and thorough work that they did. And not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Yeah. And I highly encourage you guys, again, to go in and listen to it. Let us know what you think. Let them know what you think. Let them know you heard it from us. Yes. Yes. Props to the long dance. Yes. Let us know um, where you listen. Yeah, it, it's out there anywhere. I think I listen to it on Google Podcasts or on Apple or anywhere you you can find your podcast. Same places like you can find Crime Chat. And I, That's right. I got to listen to that because you know what? The only way these some of these cases get solved is this, people constantly keep it in the media. They talk about yes. it. They dissect yes. it a little bit further. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, 
there's and that's and that's why you know Captain Horn was around that 2016 2018 mm-hmm. era like trying to get this on some sort of true crime documentary where it, it, there wasn't much the last I saw was like 2018 it's been five years there's got to be something more you know moving forward for it I have a feeling I have a gut feeling that we're gonna see this as a limited series on Netflix or at Let's least do it. Yeah, their their work in the long dance. Oh, I can't. I'm I'm yeah. definitely gonna check that out. That was really good, yeah. girl. I am like exhausted. My emotions went high. It was a roller coaster. Okay, <laughs> it was a roller. It was a roller coaster. Reading and and writing and oh you think God. you got it, and then you're like, well, what about this guy? And then well, what about this guy? And I think you know the initial assumption of when it the initial investigators were working through it mm. had the right yeah. path. Like, they were on the right path. There's a lot of good work here, and uh, kudos uh, yeah. kudos to the investigators, because that, that can't be easy in 1971 trying to piece this to get together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have yeah. a feeling with our DNA technology today, we may see some further DNA evidence. We could probably mm-hmm. extrapolate but a hope- little bit more from that rope. Yeah, make a DNA profile and hopefully close this case. Right. Close it up. It's 52 years this year, next month. Well, February. This comes out February 11th, 2023, so 51 years. And Britt is still alive, so he still can go to jail for mm-hmm. this. Yes. I'm not saying he allegedly. Allegedly, he's guilt. And allegedly. He's- he knows he's a suspect. Please. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay, cat. All right. Well, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's. Like I said, like it's the story. It's not a lovey, uh, lovey-dovey story. <laughs> But there is a love story in it. Yeah. And the the core of it is two lovers, you know, they had their own individual histories, but they found each other. They were going to have a future very young, hadn't even start their lives together. And yeah, you know, I hope they're together forever and eternity. So rest in peace, Jesse and Patricia. Yeah. And that's what really, really, oh, that breaks my heart. That really does. You know what I'm doing right now, right? I'm looking up his zodiac hey. sign. <laughs> Right oh my gosh oh my god wait uh, dr robert carl Britt. you said right he's 85 is he 85 years old right now probably he was born in september well, okay so he'd be a virgo virgo okay i mean that'd be about right he's my grandparents age yeah no absolutely yeah virgo yep well, they're not too high on the deadly list all right nope mm. yeah well he obviously has a history, too. I mean, he beat somebody with a shoe. He ran over somebody in the road. I mean, come on. Sneaky foot. <laughs> so because we don't want to leave you hanging, Chatters, for more information on this case, check out After That Crime Chat on Patreon. Yes, I'll have pictures, and I'll have some of the, the stuffs from Pruitt and Adamic on their some of the things that they put out there links to their stories um i'll throw the in the link to the the long dance as okay. well for the podcast okay cool we'll have to tag them yes and remember crime chat with nat and cat subscribe to our patreon you're gonna get bonus episodes behind the scenes bloopers you'll see a floating head on this episode because my shirt is <laughs> blending with the background and you know, well, actually that's new merch in the work so i got my new shirt yes you got some new merch yes i got my army green um, which is also the, the, obviously it's a learning experience. You should not wear green when you're wearing, when you're using a green screen. <laughs> yeah. 
But don't forget to follow us, chatters, on Crime Chat with Nat and Cat, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter mm -hmm. to see what we have coming up next. Mm -hmm. And then be sure to check out our next episode is Natalie's story. Yes. I'm not going to tell you what I'm covering, but it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. Mm. So and it's going to be cold. It's going to be cold climate. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. We'll see you on the next Crime Chat. Bye. <laughs>